Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son, who is blessed forever. We thank you, Lord, for him. We thank you for revealing him again to us in the Scriptures, revealing him to us by the new birth, by your Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of the Gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the grace of faith enabling us to believe these things. We thank you, Lord, for raising us out of our tombs and giving us the life of Christ that we may know him and see him, believe him, and hope in him. We thank you, Lord, again for this time that you've granted us from before the foundation of the world that we would come and hear what you would have us to understand about this Jesus, that we may grow in the knowledge of him, being conformed to him, Lord, by your working. We thank you, Lord. Again, we ask for your Holy Spirit to give us clarity to his word. We pray and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 12, and we are going to be working verses 1 to 8. Initially, when I had attempted to work on this chapter, the Lord had not opened much understanding and so I ended up abandoning it. <laughs> and then I came back and I realized that I had way too much. I was going to go to verse 11, all the way to verse 11, but I had to cut it out. So we are going to be in just verses 1 to 8, but even with that, there's a lot to talk about. And John records for us and says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. The word of the Lord. Our sermon title is The Fragrance of Oil. Fragrance of Oil and the New Testament. The Fragrance of Oil and the New Testament. Jesus has come and raised Lazarus from the dead. He came and commanded the stone that was on Lazarus' tomb to be rolled away. But his sister Martha had some warning, some apprehension, some things to say, No, Jesus, do not do that. Do not bring us more shame. Our brother is already dead. We have buried him with some spices, but it has been four days already. And by now, he stinketh. By now, he does not smell good. <laughs> We have rolled him in grave clothes from head to the toe 
and we have rolled the stone on him. And that is as if he would be able to rise again by his own power. It's almost like, okay, we're going to make sure that he never comes out of this tomb. (laughs) But that, my brothers and sisters, is not a teaching of the burial practices of the Jews. Because if we just read that into the story, we'll miss out on a lot of glorious things. This is a preaching of the gospel. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus at this point is not just sick. Lazarus is dead because he was a sinner. He was in the loins of his father Adam. And everyone who is of the stock of Adam goes this way. They die and they get buried because they are born or were born dead in trespasses and sins. All who are born of Adam are not sick people who just have some scratchy throats, <laughs> runny noses, and are just sneezing from the cold of sin, who can just be cured with some good lozenges or some hot tea with honey and a little bit of Kleenex wipes. No, the children of Adam were all born dead in trespasses and sins, and Jesus did not come to save them hearty. Jesus came to raise them from the dead. And a sinner will not believe in the truth about the person of Jesus Christ unless their grave clothes have been removed from them. And a sinner will not believe in the truth about the person of Christ and his work unless they have been raised to life. And a sinner will not believe they are a sinner unless they have been raised to spiritual life. A sinner will not believe they have not faith unless they are born again. A lot of people think they have faith by themselves. Even unbelievers think they have faith. (laughs) But the question is, What kind of faith are they talking about? Are they talking about the faith that looks to God's testimony about Christ and the gospel? No, their faith is, I believe in me. I believe that it's going to rain tomorrow. It's going to be cold tomorrow. I believe I'm going to be successful in this life. Now, that's not the faith of the gospel. The gospel faith, the faith that God gives, always looks to the testimony of Christ, who he is and what he has done. The testimony of faith always tells you that you are a sinner and you are faithless by yourself unless God enables you to believe. So a sinner will not believe in all that is true about God and themselves unless they are raised from the dead. And this doctrine is not known in the church. And that is why the teaching is always about the dead sinner coming and choosing Christ and whatever the sinner has done and is doing to keep themselves happy in Jesus. But the question that we may want to ask is, since when did anyone ever go to a cemetery to hire people for work? You go to a cemetery 
and ask if anyone there wants a job that pays $1 million a year and see how many people will raise their hand. Maybe $2 million, maybe 30, maybe 100 million, maybe 100 billion dollars and still you won't have any takers. They are not takers. So they are not takers of salvation unless Christ himself has come and raised the people from their deadness unto the life of the gospel. And if you go to a cemetery anywhere in the world today, and it doesn't matter how much money you offer them, no one is going to raise their hand and say, me, 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 hire me. I am looking for a job. I've been looking for a job. No, they are not going to do that. Why? Because they are dead. They have no interest in anything because they can't hear and they can't move and have no use of anything. And eternal life in Christ is much more than any sum of money that can be given and yet sinners still won't receive it. Eternal life in Christ is way beyond that anything that man can give to have it and yet men will not receive it because they don't want it. They don't know what it means. They refuse it because they are dead. So all men born in Adam are in the cemetery. They are born dead and buried just like Lazarus was buried. But in this deadness, they would not keep quiet. (laughs) They are dead, but they won't keep quiet. They will stand on their hind legs and deny that it is God who actually chose sinners to salvation. This is one of the things that I've been debating, discussing with some people on WhatsApp about faith because they claim that they are the ones who generate the faith because their faith is increasing. But that's not the testimony of the gospel. Faith is given as a gift. Christ is the author and finisher of faith. And when you continue to hear the gospel, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so when you continue to learn the things of Christ, your faith naturally increases. Just like when a baby continues to drink milk, they can't help but grow. (laughs) They have to grow because the gospel is the means by which God will raise us up and continue to mature us. So what else do people say when they are arguing about their deadness? They say God only chose them because he foresaw that they would make a choice for Christ. This is the heart of the majority of what is being preached in the majority of the church world. All these churches are built on the foundation that men are they who chose Christ. So. There's nothing about, or you were born dead in trespasses and sins. You have no ability whatsoever to come to Christ. You need to be born again. There's nothing like that. They believe that if you just repeat some prayer, then it is well with you. Folks, we believe that if you repeat this prayer, you have been born again. (laughs) But that is just arrogant and boastful. Why? Because that is the testimony of those who are still dead spiritually. There's no way that the Holy Spirit would raise someone to life and leave them to continue with the testimony that they are the ones who took themselves out of the tomb. 
Lazarus knew exactly who raised him out of the tomb. He knew it was not his sisters. He knew it was not the mourners. He knew it wasn't himself. He knew that it was Jesus who came to his tomb and raised him to life. But the sickness of Lazarus was not to be the final commentary on his life. It was not unto death according to Jesus. It was not unto a permanent death, a permanent separation from God. But it was so that God would be glorified in his resurrection. And that means his salvation. God is here preaching about the resurrection unto life, the resurrection of salvation. God is not just putting up a show. No, he is giving us a picture of how salvation works. So the sin of man in Adam was not unto a permanent death of all who were born in Adam. It's not all who were born in Adam who are going to die permanently. There are some, a remnant, who were born in Adam, but who were chosen in Christ, who were loved of God, who shall not die. They shall not die because they are objects of God's love in Christ, and so God chose them to salvation. And so sin and condemnation were not things that happened by accident, as many presume, but were by God's ordination, they were by God's determination, they were by God's sovereign will and purpose, that through the devil, through the instrumentality of Satan, Christ would be glorified in the salvation of his people. So it is the glory of Christ that is driving all things. God is not reacting to what has become of man. Men have become who they are because of the glory of Christ. So Christ was not going to be glorified in salvation if there were no sinners to save. Many people, unfortunately, do not think this way. They think man, man existed before God. <laughs> actually, there are people who actually think that. But their kind of thinking is as if man existed before God and it is God who is on the leash in service to man. They continue to see heaven as a huge fire department with many fire trucks and Jesus being the chief fire marshal to be used of man in Jesus' name, whatever you want to say in Jesus' name, then it has to happen, decree and declare it in Jesus. You name it and claim it and it will happen in Jesus' name. Amen. That's what they say. But that is a very skewed and false understanding of God. Heaven does not exist for the service of man. Man exists to the glory of God. All creation exists to the glory of God. The devil exists to the glory of God. The devil sinned because God decreed for him to sin. The devil is a tool that God uses. The devil is a tool in God's toolbox. God has a toolbox. And all creation is God's toolbox. <laughs> he uses all creation as he pleases. He brings a hurricane. That's a tool in his toolbox. He uses snow. He uses whatever he wants. And all those are tools in his toolbox. And who has a toolbox 
and is worried about the nails jumping out of the toolbox, out of control, about hammers, screwdrivers, and drills getting out of control and going crazy. Nobody would think that. But for some reason, we think creation is out of control. And God, for some reason, doesn't even know what is happening with the things that he created. But we know this about tools. Tools will only do their job when they're in the hands of the owner. And so the devil will only work in the hands of God. And Isaiah 10 already argued that about Assyria being the rod of God's indignation. And then God coming and saying to Assyria, Oh, you are so boastful. You think you did this by yourself. You are just an axe in my hands. You're just a tool. But you're a tool that has become too boastful and I'm going to beat you up for that. (laughs) So the devil is in God's hand as he even claimed himself. Listen to Job 1, Job chapter 1, verses 8 to 12. The angels and the devil have come before the throne of God to report. They are coming to give an account of their activities. Everyone has a job to do. Everyone has a job description. And they're coming for a performance evaluation. (laughs) And we have here recorded for us in Job 1, verse 8 to 12. And Moses writes and says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But listen to verse 11. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. God, now you stretch out your hand on him and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you. And listen now how that hand is stretched out. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. All that he has is in your power. So, God, why say that? Why don't you just stretch out your hand? Why are you giving this to the devil to do? Because the devil is God's hand. Stretch out your hand. Lay your hand on him. And God says, you go and lay your hand on everything, but don't touch his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So the devil is a creation of Jesus Christ. A lot of people think that the devil is this powerful being to the same level as God, and God somehow is at a loss as to how to deal with him. That God maybe is on some medication, high blood pressure medicine, because he just doesn't know what to do with this boy. (laughs) But that's a very false picture of what is happening. Colossians 1.16, Paul writes and says, For by him all things, that is by Christ, all things were created that are in heaven 
and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So that includes the rank of fallen angels. And Paul does not say, oh, I'm very sorry, I did not mean to say that. Let me correct that. No, all things were created by Christ for his use. God uses everything that he created. They were made through him and they are for him. They're for him. There is things. So I thought it would clear, clear that out. But man had to sin and die because this was God's way of revealing himself to us. God could not be known outside the work of redemption. The work of redemption in Christ is what gives us the clearest picture of who God is. Otherwise, outside redemption, we can't really know who God is to the level that we can know him as created things. God would have us to know something about grace. And grace could not be known outside the context of sin and condemnation. And grace is not grace if we think it is just something that paves the way for us to make ourselves savable. Grace is not for helping our best efforts at self-salvation. Grace is God showing us his heart and love towards those who are in Christ. Because God loves Christ. And because he loves Jesus, he is loving us on account of the love that he has for Christ. But because we are creatures and sinful creatures at that, the only way that we can come before him is by the way of grace because we could never have any merits in ourselves to commend ourselves before him to say, well, I'm going to show up here, I've been feeding the poor, and I think I'm worthy of eternal life. <laughs> God is going to say, um, no, it does not work like that. Okay. So grace is grace, and is glorious grace and marvelous grace because we have no ability whatsoever to do anything towards our own salvation. We have no ability in our natural state to desire to come to Christ or to work anything that is pleasing to him. But grace is grace because it searches and it gives life, it gives righteousness, which things we did not know that we needed for salvation. Grace provides everything and it saves completely. Grace takes garbage and makes it the most expensive thing ever purchased. <laughs> and we were garbage that was purchased by Christ from the slave market of sin and paid for, redeemed by the blood of Christ himself. And so we can say Christ is a garbage collector. Yes, he is. He did not find us in the department store in the jewelry section, sparkling with righteousness like diamonds. No, he did not. He found us in the dumpster, and we were happy there, 
eating all kinds of things with the raccoons that were coming to the dumpster. But going back to Lazarus, Lazarus dies because God was preaching the coming death and resurrection of Christ. And so Christ cries, he comes and he cries because he knows that the death of Lazarus is an important time marker to say the hour of his glorification on the cross has come. The death of Lazarus was a very important time marker in the life of Jesus. He knew that when this thing happens, then my time to go on the cross is near. It has come. So he cries as the man of sorrows. He is the man who is acquainted with grief. And this man who is acquainted with grief has to die because he was revealed to die. Jesus was not revealed for people to buy Christmas presents. Jesus was revealed to die that he may save his people from their sins. And Jesus knows this. He knows what is going to happen. But before we get to that point, Jesus has to preach the gospel again. He has to preach our story in Lazarus. We are Lazarus. If we are looking at the story, we find ourselves in the story of Lazarus. And in this story, Jesus does not come to a sick Lazarus. He comes to a dead Lazarus. Because he did not come to raise the sick back to life. He did not come to fix marriages back to life and inflate the tires of life, but to raise the dead. Because man's problem is not sickness. Man's problem is not sickness. But the gospel in the church, the gospel that is being preached, is tailored to those who are the sick, those who have low self-esteem. It is a therapeutic message because men know not that they are dead. They do not understand of their spiritual state. They know not that Oprah and Dr. Phil are not good enough to provide a solution of what plagues men. They know not of the law of God, the holiness and righteousness of God, the wrath of God, the need of satisfaction of God's righteousness and justice. They know not of the need of blood to make atonement for sin. They know not that the soul that sins must die. They think men die because they get sick and they get old. They think that the problems that we have in our society can be solved if the esteem levels of the nation could be raised just a little bit up. But Jesus did not die to raise our levels of self-esteem. He died to make us accepted by the Father, to reconcile us to the Father. He died to make satisfaction of God's law, and that is propitiation. The death of Christ propitiated the wrath of God. So in Christ, God is happy with all those that he put in him. God is happy with all those 
that he put in Christ because he sees them through Christ. But sickness is but a symptom of a much deeper problem and that problem is sin, but sin does not come by itself. Where there's sin, there has to be death and condemnation. Where sin is, there has to be death and condemnation. And where there's sin, there has need of redemption. But the religion of man prescribes chewing gum <laughs> to try and cure cancer. And say, oh, here's some gum. Here's some trident. You go chew it. And it's okay between you and God. <laughs> but Jesus shows up at the tomb of Lazarus. And he commands the tomb to be opened. For the rock to be pulled away. For the stone to be pulled away. This tablet of stone that kills. But the question is this. Who is going to roll it away? Seeing that touching the tomb would have made one ceremonially unclean according to the law. These are people who are under the law and they know this from the law. Numbers 19, Numbers 19, 11 and 13 says, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanliness is still on him. So the people are thinking, no way, Jesus. <laughs> we can't touch that stone because not only does Lazarus stink, you are going to make us unclean. You are going to make us unclean. And no, Jesus, you have not supplied us with the hazmat suits. You haven't given us gloves and respirators. And we know that whoever touches that tomb is going to become unclean. So there's a lot of apprehension at the instruction of Jesus. People don't want to do that. Touching or getting in contact with a tomb was supposed to defile a person. And that is why the Jews whitewashed their tombs to make them visible to people. Because if you were just walking by and you accidentally stepped on one, guess what? You're already unclean. And so they had to whitewash them. And so when Jesus came, he said to the Jews and he was rebuking them in Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28, he said to the Jews, What to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear Righteous to man, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. <laughs> so people are like, okay, Jesus, I don't know about this one. I don't know. You're going to make me unclean. And if you're talking about Mary and Martha, this is the fourth day. They probably are waiting on the seventh day. They did the purification on the third day. And they have one more purification to do. And then they'll be clean. And Jesus says, oh, come. And we have to start this again. Like, man, that does not make sense. That is not right. <laughs> but this is what is happening. 
the law condemns all dead men as unclean. And so all men are declared to be unclean, not because of the corpse itself, but because they are born dead in Adam. It is not the grave that defiled them. They are defiled because of Adam. And so the tombstone that we have on Lazarus' tomb is the picture of the tablet of the law that is saying to you and I, in your deadness, you will not come out without passing through where the law is. You cannot come out of your tomb without passing through the law. You cannot come out alive unless you have satisfied the law with real life and real righteousness. Why? Because the law condemns you not just for a few days, but forever. The letter kills. And since no man is able to satisfy the law, it is Christ alone who has the power and the authority over the law and the grave. It is he who has to come and give the command. Nobody else in the procession, nobody else who came with Jesus could command the stone to be rolled away. It's Christ alone who has that right and privilege to roll away the stone of the law. Why? Because he is the life and the righteousness, and he is our righteousness. And the law listens to Christ. It listens to him because Moses was the servant of Christ. And when Christ says to Moses, roll away the stone, the stone has to be rolled away. And that means no condemnation on Lazarus and no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus on whom Christ has commanded that the stone be rolled away. And these that Christ has come and commanded for the stone to be rolled away are they that he loves. Romans 8 verse 1 to 4, Apostle Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So Lazarus is under the law of sin and death, and that is how he finds himself in the tomb. For what the law could not do. So the law could not do something for Lazarus. The law could not draw itself away from Lazarus. Christ is he who has to come and make that command on behalf of Lazarus. But listen to this. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. God did. God actually sent Christ to the tomb of Lazarus to roll it away. (laughs) It is Christ who condemned sin in the flesh. And yes, he did. For what reason? Verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The righteous requirement of the law was to be met by the obedience and death of Christ. And that way it was met and fulfilled for us and in us. We look to Christ and what he accomplished and that is the fulfillment that God required from us. So the tomb of Lazarus was the commentary of the spiritual state of all men who are born in Adam, born dead, born unclean, 
and without life. But the sister Martha says, that is not good, Jesus. Why don't we just leave things as they are? You're going to make us unclean by this again, Jesus. <laughs> but Jesus says, no, you don't understand something. You are already unclean. You are already unclean. You are not defiled by your touching an unclean person. You are defiled internally because of sin. And Jesus taught this from Mark in Mark 7, 18 to 23. He said, Are you thus without understanding also? There were questions about ritual, ceremonial cleanliness, washing of hands. Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. You see, Jesus knows something about science. And he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man, for from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Oh, foolishness is on there too. (laughs) All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So Jesus is coming and giving a commentary to say, no, 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 you guys are not getting these things correctly. You are not understanding what the law is saying. The law is saying the problem is within you, it's not without you. But Jesus is the one who knows everything about the law and what the law stands. He is the one who interprets the law for us. And and the law has no more power to kill those whom Jesus has commanded to life. The law listens to what Jesus says. The law cannot keep those that Christ has brought to life under it. It can't keep them under the stone anymore because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But Lazarus also has the grave clothes and the grave clothes are a picture of the religion of men. What men do to other men, wrapping them around with their own things. The grave clothes of do not touch, do not taste, do not feel. I'll assure you of this one very important thing about the gospel. If you do not stand, if you don't stand on Christ alone, someone guaranteed will always bring some grave clothes to wrap you around as to bury you. It's guaranteed they will find some grave clothes. They will choose them. They will buy them. They will bring them. They will even put the burial spices with them. Even if they come saying grace, grace, grace. They'll say grace, grace, grace. But here is some grave clothes for you. (laughs) They will even perfume those grave clothes. Telling you of the virtues of their particular program. To make it appealing to your flesh. And before you know it, you are already wrapped in the religion of men. I'm, I'm serious. That is what God is teaching us. Why would he tell us about the grave clothes? And that is why the doctrine of justification 
by faith alone in what Christ accomplished is so glorious and is so important that it can never be lost. We should never, if we lose that doctrine, we have nothing. But you see this. Some people have been to multiple grave sites, multiple tombs, multiple churches, and have come out with all kinds of grave clothes. Why? Because every tomb has its own set of grave clothes. Every place that has no gospel is a grave site that has its own grave clothes to put on you. If you show up there, they will tell you of their own things of how you can be made right with God. But of course, these things change from denomination to denomination. (laughs) But when we preach the gospel of grace, the purpose is so that God would awaken us and remove the grave clothes of religion that we have accumulated over the years of our lives. And there's none who is found by Christ not buried in their tomb and not covered in some version of grave clothes and stinking up to the heavens. All men are found in this state by Christ. And if we deny that testimony, we end up with another gospel that is not the gospel of Christ. When we're talking about the true gospel of Christ, as far as man is concerned, we begin with what became of man because of sin. Man became depraved. They came under sin, death, and condemnation. They lost their ability, spiritual ability to do anything. They lost desire to do anything. There's none who seeks after God. No, not one. There's none righteous. That is the condition of man. But when it comes to God, we begin with who God is, his glory, his holiness, his righteousness. And when we have that understanding, we realize that when Jesus came, he did not find Lazarus in the ICU. Lazarus was not in the intensive care unit. He did not find him taking some medicine before he could take an afternoon nap. Jesus did not find Lazarus with a high fever. Jesus did not come to Lazarus at the hospital during the visiting hours. No, Lazarus was not anywhere where people would come and visit him and encourage him and pray for him. (laughs) No, no, no. Jesus came to the cemetery, the burial place of the dead. Jesus did not come to cheer up Lazarus to say, keep up the good fight. He did not bring Lazarus some snacks. He came to Lazarus as the resurrection and the life, and he spoke life to him. But the sister Martha did not want Lazarus to be raised to life because she knew the brother was stinking. But praise the Lord, Jesus does not listen to the testimony of man. He came anyway, and he commanded you and I to come forth. And the testimony of the stinking of Lazarus is the testimony of the law. The law says all men stinketh and their graves should not be opened. Even their mouths are like an open grave. Right? That's what Isaiah says. So Lazarus remained dead because the stone that was put on him was put by man, was rolled by man, it was rolled 
by Moses. It is Moses who wrote the stone and that is the law that is rolling itself and sealing your fate. Your fate. So it is Moses who wrote the stone and this stone, as I said, was a picture of the law written on the tablets of stone, the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of death. But Christ, who has life in himself, is he who has to come and he commands for the stone to be removed. Why? Because he has given life to Lazarus and the stone has to be rolled away. Lazarus died because of sin. He died because the power of sin is in the law, in the tablets of stone. The power of sin is in the law, in the tablets of stone that were rolled over his grave. And the condemnation of the law cannot just be rolled away unless this other living rock, remember, Jesus is also a rock, unless this other living rock shows up. Because if you try to roll away the stone without Christ, guess what you're going to find? Just a rotten and stinking corpse. That's all you're going to find. But this rock called Christ when he came and he commanded for the stone to be rolled away. Guess what? Lazarus came walking. Lazarus had life. Christ is the stone that walks. <laughs> A stone that is life in itself. And so praise the Lord that he did not operate on the testimony of Martha to not roll away the stone. Praise the Lord, he does not operate on the testimony of our parents or ourselves who may call us saved before Jesus has showed up. And this is a problem in the church. Many are called saved who are yet to be saved. And all of us, at one point or another, we were sprinkled and we thought we were in. <laughs> Until the Lord came and said, oh, no, 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 you are still in the tomb with Lazarus. That sprinkling did not give you life. The stone had not yet been rolled away. So it doesn't matter how well one has been rolled in, in, rolled in grave clothes and buried. It doesn't matter how beautiful the casket is. If they're dead, they're dead. It doesn't matter what religious practices and expressions. Unless one is born again, they will not see life. Unless one is born again, you can practice the religion and you may appear to be saved, but you are not. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty four and to 26. This is very interesting. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, Luke eleven twenty four to 26. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will tend to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Many are such houses and people that call themselves Christians. They look swept and put in order by religious practice. Not because the Holy Spirit has come and taken abode in them. Not because Christ has visited their tombs. And this can go for a lifetime as long as Christ does not show up. 
they look blameless, they look swept and put in order, put together, but yet they still are not born again. Christ has not yet come to their tomb. And so we have to be careful about this fact. We don't make anyone a Christian by rolling them in our own grave clothes, by our own judgments and say, oh, they are clean. Because for me, I'll speak for me, for the longest time, I was actually surprised. I used to think that I was a Christian and would have died in that false testimony and ignorance had the Lord listened to my own testimony (laughs) and the testimony of others. From the time that I started to be able to read and write, I identified myself as a Christian. You go check my history anywhere where there's a form that required me to identify my religion. I said Christian, but I wasn't born again. But I was some sweet little boy, I guess. (laughs) But praise the Lord that he knew that I was still dead in the tomb and he had to come. But like Lazarus, I did not invite Jesus to come. Like Lazarus, I could not come out of my tomb by myself. Christ is he who had to command it and to give me the power to hear and to believe the gospel. But even when we have been awakened to spiritual life, some people do not have all their grave clothes removed. I don't think anyone has all their grave clothes removed. We still have a grave clothes problem. And that is why the scriptures say, renew your mind. Your mind needs to be renewed because you still have some remnants from all the grave sites that you've been. <laughs> so the renewal of the mind is a call to a removal of the layers of grave clothes through the hearing of the truth of Christ. And when you still have remnants of grave clothes, you get attracted to the old religion You still get attracted to the works religion, attracted to so-called ministries that have a demonstration of power. Or we want to have this power also. We still are attracted to the smell of the burial spices. They smell good, but for a minute before they get overpowered again by the stench of death. But burial spices, no matter how good they smell, they are meant for those who die. And decompose. Works religion, no matter how good it looks, is meant for those who die and decompose. But thankfully, the Lord does not listen to our testimonies about ourselves. He only listens to his own testimony of us. God knows who is still in their tomb. He knows whose house is swept and put in order, but still needs the Holy Spirit. And this is why you will meet with some people who appear to have the testimony of Christ, who appear to have been sorted by grace, but they are still whitewashed tombs. When they open their mouths, they are like open tombs. Inside, they are full of uncleanliness and dead men's bones, as Jesus said. They are easily provoked and they provoke others at the movement of a hair, and they are ready to strike and to destroy like a cobra. Why? For from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's the teaching of Jesus. From the abundance of the grave, 
the board stinketh. <laughs> but with respect to Christ, we are told, you will not let your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus' body did not stink of decomposition. The body of Christ did not decay. The Holy Spirit preserved his body because that is true religion because Christ has the fragrance of life and righteousness in himself. And we want to see that because it's connected to what Mary comes and does. Because we have here a contrast of aromas. The aroma of Lazarus in the grave, he stinketh. And a few verses down the line, the body, sorry, the, what, what do you call that? The flask that's full of oil, it gets broken and it fills the whole house with a nice fragrance. And that is very purposeful. It's not by accident. But Lazarus has to be raised because he is preaching Christ's coming death and resurrection. This sickness is not unto death, but to the glory of God through the Son. The Son has to be glorified in raising Lazarus, but the Son is glorified in dying on the cross. God has to be glorified in the salvation of his people. And Caiaphas and his gang are brought into the mix of the conversation to preach this reality. Caiaphas and the Pharisees are brought into the story of Lazarus to make commentary on what is happening. They hear of Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus to death from those who came from Mary and Martha's house, and they are not very happy about that. You would think that if I heard that one of our neighbors had died and they'd been raised to life, that would make me happy. But these guys are offended by it. They surmise that this man called Jesus has to be taken care of. They have to get rid of him. Why? For he's making more disciples and drawing more people away from them. And if that happens, they think Rome will come and take their place and they'll find themselves collecting unemployment benefits. That is the argument. It's a fleshly argument, just the same way Judas is going to bring a fleshly argument. This is very expensive oil. Why don't we sell it and feed the poor? And in the process, I'll take half of it. Seems like that works better for me. <laughs> so these guys, these chief priests and Pharisees, they say, well, we have to protect our cheese. We, we, we can't find ourselves collecting Cheerios and milk coming from the government because we are unemployed. We have to save our jobs. So they plotted to kill Jesus. They think this is the way to protect their jobs. He has to die. And so the plot thickens. Why? Because the time for the Son of God to be glorified is near. And God is driving everything. And one of them, Caiaphas, the high priest, rebuked the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, You fools, listen to this again from John 11, 49-52. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, 
and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So Caiaphas is making a prophecy about the death of Christ and the significance of that death. And he says that ignorantly, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. (laughs) But Caiaphas says that as the representative of the law because he's a high priest. So it is the law that pronounces death on Christ. It is expedient that this one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And so if this one man dies for the people, the whole nation will be saved. That's preaching the gospel. Very good teaching, Caiaphas. But only one problem. It's not your idea. (laughs) It's not your idea. It did not come from you. It is God who prophesied through him. But this is a very important theological statement by Caiaphas. He is preaching the gospel. But Jesus knows about their plot to kill him. And so he went away into the wilderness and was hiding. Hiding not because he was afraid, for he was afraid of no man. Jesus was not afraid of anybody. Jesus went into hiding because he was maintaining the schedule of his death. He had to die on the Passover day as the Passover lamb. Because shortly he will come back and submit to their desire because that was the father's desire. Jesus was not submitting to the man for the sake of the man. No, he was submitting to them because he said to Pilate, you would not have power over me. You have no authority over me unless it was given you from above. But in this, he is offering himself as the sacrifice. And in this, he is fulfilling Isaiah 53. And so from the wilderness, as the Passover of the Jews was near, this is, by the way, the, the third Passover that was mentioned and recorded for us by John. This is the third Passover that was recorded in the ministry of our Lord. And people use this accounting by John to determine the length of the ministry of the Lord because the Passover was an annual feast. It was celebrated one time a year. And so since there were three Passovers recorded in the book of John, people have drawn the conclusion that Jesus' ministry was about two and a half to three years long. But Jesus comes back by way of Martha and Mary's house in Bethany. He comes to dine with them and share some understanding before he departs for the cross. And so John says, verse 1 of John 12, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. So it seems to me, Jesus was only in the wilderness briefly, even one day, from the time that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Because John told us, that already there were pilgrims coming to Jerusalem on that day that Lazarus was raised. So the pilgrims were coming to prepare themselves for the feast of the Passover. So Jesus comes back to Bethany to this family where Lazarus was who had been dead and whom he had raised from the dead. 
And that's a true testimony of what had happened to Lazarus. And Lazarus would give a hearty amen and say, Amen, I was dead, and it's Christ who came and raised me to life. <laughs> but the church would say, No, 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 that is not correct. Okay, you can't tell men that they're dead. That's not being very nice. <laughs> People are, uh, we're just taking a nap. They can really stretch out their hands and receive Christ. I receive it. I can stretch out my hand. I can receive the pen. Here's the pen. Take it. No, I can take it. I can receive it. I'm not dead at all, after all. But there's a problem. God says we can't stretch out our hands. They are withered. That's what God was teaching with the man who had a withered hand. It doesn't matter how much he wanted to stretch out the hand. If it was withered like that, it was like that forever. So that is speaking to human inability. We can't even receive anything because we can't stretch our hand. So the command to stretch does not necessarily mean you have ability, but it assumes that there is power that is given in that command by him. So we were blind and our eyes could not see the hand that was giving it. And we were lame, we could not even walk to where salvation was. And we were poor, and we could not even afford to buy salvation if it were put on sale. Okay. Verse 2, there they made him a supper, and Martha saved by Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So they made supper for Jesus. And I think this is just some glorious thing for Jesus to be coming and hanging out at your house. There were not that many people. When Jesus used to come, he would just come looking for refreshment with his boys. He would just come and be at Mary and Martha's house. For Jesus to come to your house like that is glorious. I mean, God just coming and showing up and saying, Hey, Robert, I just come to hang out. <laughs> but of course, he was always teaching. And Miss Martha, obviously, is the diligent worker. She is cooking and serving the people. And Miss Mary is somewhere painting her nails or something. But we're told that Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with Christ. And I'm sure they were not talking about sports news. Jesus was talking about the kingdom and what was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. Verse 3, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So Miss Mary took a pound of perfume, and she poured the whole thing on Jesus. And we have different narratives of what I think is the same story by Mark, Matthew, and John. Hear what Mark says, Mark 14, verse 1 to 9. Verse 1 to 9, Mark says, After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they came one after the other. The Passover will end today. And the next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread would go for seven days after that. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard, 
Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Wow. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. (laughs) But me, you do not have always. She has done what she should. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as memorial to her, even as is today. (laughs) Matthew 26, verse 6 to 13. This Matthew's telling of the story. Matthew 26, 6 to 13. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now Luke is a controversial one. And this is what Luke says in Luke 7. Luke seven thirty six to 39. Luke records and says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner, which means she is a prostitute. This narrative by Luke seems to be a different one from the one reported by John, Mark, and Matthew. And some commentators argue that this was a separate incident that happened away before the cross. But I see as I have been reading and studying that the argumentation centers on, centers on, on an attempt to try and say, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, could not be a prostitute. It is almost like the Roman Catholic argument for the perpetual virginity of Mary, the mother of Jesus. That people somehow feel ashamed that Mary could actually have been a prostitute. But the record by John, Mark, and Matthew seem to share the same narrative of the story, which took place in Bethany. The location we are told is in Bethany, And it happened a few days before the Passover. Okay. So the woman anoints Jesus and there is protestation 
of wasting of the expensive perfume and Jesus defends the woman as an act of devotion and praised her for offering an anointing for him. So Jesus gives the theological significance to the action that was done by the woman and he praised her for it. So I think the record by Mark, Matthew, and John are speaking to the same event. But if that is really so, we have some really interesting things that may come out of it. Because John told us that this event happened in Bethany, and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were there. But Mark and Matthew tell us that it happened at the house of Simon the leper, who was a Pharisee. So I'm thinking maybe Simon the leper may have been the father of the three. May have been the father of the three. I don't know that. But it's just interesting that the same event is said to have happened at this Pharisee's house. And yet Martha, Mary and Lazarus were there. And Martha is one who is also feeding the whole crew. But then I'm thinking, okay, the guy is called Simon the leper. Was he still... Was he healed already of the leprosy or he still had the leprosy even though Jesus was there? Jesus, why don't you heal the leprosy of those that have invited you at at their house? My other speculation is Simon the leper may have been healed already by Jesus and that is why he had invited Jesus to his home. But you know with people, once they give you a name, they continue to identify you with that name. <laughs> so it's Simon the leper who used to have leprosy, but he doesn't have leprosy anymore. But pay attention to this also. John tells us that Judas was the son of Simon. Could it be that this Simon who is the Pharisee, Simon the leper, was also the father of Judas Iscariot? Because when Jesus gets to his house, he doesn't have Very good things to say about him. Jesus doesn't say very good things to say. He rebukes him and says, Look, I've been to your house. You have done nothing for me. But look at this woman. Look what she has done. In contrast to what you did for me. So I I don't think that this Pharisee, I don't know if I was saved or not, but it's just interesting to me with all these details that are that have been given us. But here's another thing also for us to think about from the testimonies. Because when you read John chapter 12 at the very beginning, Jesus comes to Bethany and it sounds like he was anointed that very day that he came to have supper. But I don't think he was necessarily anointed on the very day that he got to Bethany. It seems like the remainder of his days before the cross, he spent them in Bethany. Because Mark says two days before the Passover, and Passover is the day that Jesus died. Mark says the event of anointing of Christ happened two days before the Passover. And John is saying six days before the Passover is when Jesus came to Bethany and he was anointed, but not necessarily. It seems to me that Jesus may have stayed in Bethany until the two days before the Passover as he continued to visit a number of homes in the neighborhood around this time, 
including that of Simon the leper, if he was a different guy. But using the home of Martha and Mary as his home base. But there's something also of interest. Is it possible that Jesus was anointed twice for the very same thing? Because if the woman in Luke is a different woman from Mary, then Jesus was anointed twice. Would there be any need for him to be anointed twice? I don't know. I don't think so. But he could still be anointed by someone just as an act of devotion to Christ because of the forgiveness of sins. Because anointing apparently was not as uncommon as it is today. They used to do that as a practice. So it's possible still that there were two anointings that were done by two different women. But if Mary is the woman who is the sinner in Luke 7, that is very interesting. Because you see Mary always at the feet of Jesus, always learning from Jesus. And so doctrine, good doctrine informs practice. Mary has some understanding of what is about to happen to Jesus. Mary knows from the conversation and the learning that she has had with Jesus that Jesus is about to go on the cross. And so she comes and she breaks her alabaster flask and she anoints Jesus. But whatever the identity of the woman in Luke, it is interesting to me that this oil was bought from the proceeds of her prostitution business. She was a prostitute. And yet the Lord did not rebuke her for that. Rather, he commended her for her good work towards him. (laughs) Anointing the body of Christ for burial. So we see in this that a good work is one that is done towards Christ and towards his people. That is a very important understanding that comes from that. Okay, You can talk about this thing as a separate event. Uh, and try to find out which Mary and what Mary. But I think it, it is suffice to say there was an anointing that happened of Christ before his burial, and that had significance as far as the gospel is concerned. But as I said earlier, there's a purposeful juxtaposition of teaching by John of the person of Lazarus and his grave, and what was happening in his grave, the stinking of the grave, and what happens when Jesus comes back to Bethany and the alabaster full of oil is broken. There is a proper distinction between the different smells, the aromas that come out of those two people. And this is explained in Second Corinthians 2, verse 14 and Verse 14 to 16, where Apostle Paul says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And then he says, who is sufficient for these things? And so we see here a contrast of the ministries of the law that brought death and the ministry of the new covenant that brings life. 
the law kills and so it causes a stink. Anything that kills has to cause a stink. They come together. But the spirit gives life and Christ smells good by reason of life. And the believer smells good by reason of the life that is in Christ or the, by reason of Christ who is in them. So if anyone continues to tie themselves to the ministry of Moses, guess what? They will continue to stink in, in the nostrils of God. See this also, that the fragrance covered the whole house. That's very purposeful. It covers the whole house of Christ, the whole church of Christ. It covers every believer in Christ. And on this Christ, the jar was broken. And the oil was not just some regular cooking oil that you buy and admire. This was some expensive oil. And it was poured out in its fullness. And since it was poured out in its fullness by the breaking of the jar, it means this anointing oil could not be used again on anybody because the container is broken. But why break it? Why break it? She could have just popped the top off and poured it out. Why are you breaking it, Mary? What understanding do you have? The jar was broken because that was preaching about the body of Christ that was to be broken on the Passover. It was to be broken completely on the cross that the Holy Spirit, the oil, may be given. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the promise of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit is only given in the context of the death of the broken body of Christ. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 27 says, This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Do you see all these themes are right there at the grave of Lazarus? Is God who is coming and he's saying, I am coming and removing your filthiness, your stinkiness. I'm going to do that. And I'll give you a new heart. And I'll put a new spirit within you. And I'll take the heart of stone. I'll even roll the stone away from you. <laughs> and I'll give you a new heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll keep my judgments and do them. So without the death of Christ, there's no giving of the Holy Spirit. Without the death of Christ, there's no giving of the Holy Spirit. We are getting close to finish, so be encouraged. It's getting actually very good now. You're going to learn some wonderful nuggets. Remember where we are. At this point, all roads lead to Calvary. We are headed to the cross. And so the teaching of the cross has to continue. The Holy Spirit is the oil that comes out or is given after the body of Christ has been broken. Otherwise, the oil will continue to remain in him. He said, I'm going to go to the Father and I'll send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. 
otherwise he will remain in himself. So it is the Holy Spirit who perfumes the body of Christ with the work of Christ, sanctifying and conforming them to the image of Christ. And sanctification is the work of God alone. Christ is he who is the fulfillment of all that pertains to anointing and is the giver of the anointing that is the Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament, they anointed the kings, all these offices, they had anointing put on them and Christ is he who is the fulfillment of that. But not only that, he also is the giver of that anointing because when when the flask was broken, all the oil was used up. So the only way that you and I can have anointing is to get it on Christ. It is he who has to give it to us. There's no other man who can give the Holy Spirit. And you can't put the Holy Spirit in a prayer shower. You can't put the Holy Spirit in anything because you have no power to put the Holy Spirit in anything. It is the work of Christ himself to anoint his people. So it is Christ also who fulfills Isaiah 52, 7 in this story. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So it is the beautiful feet of Christ that have been anointed with oil that bring the good news of the gospel. Okay. But see this also from the book of John. There are two pictures of the Holy Spirit that have been given us. And they have been associated with two women. The Samaritan woman and Mary. The Samaritan woman, we are told of the living water. And Mary comes with the anointing oil. The Samaritan woman is a Gentile. She's a Samaritan. And Mary is a Jew. And both are united one way by the giving of the Holy Spirit. They are gathered together in one body, the body of Christ broken. You get that? I thought that was very interesting. Let's work these things a few more. It's not, they're not very long. I will have to pick them up again uh, next week. But let's talk to them some. Verse 4, 5, and 6. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. So Judas is named by John as the one who was not very pleased with the idea that the fragrant oil be used on Jesus. But I don't think it was him alone. There were some of the disciples who had been taken by this hypocrisy, but it was Judas who led the charge. And so Judas does some accounting and he comes out with a valuation of 300 denarii. And that was the annual salary of a laborer. That's how much they earned in a year. They got paid one denarius a day. So that is very expensive and inconceivable amount to just break, to pour on someone's head and feet. To Judah's way of thinking, 
that is lack of financial discipline and acumen on the part of Jesus and Mary. That is poor investment to pour this much oil and this much money on Jesus. Let us give him some cheap stuff. For there is a much better use of this precious oil. This oil is worth more than Jesus. So Judas, Judas is here putting evaluation or estimate on Christ. According to his thinking, Jesus is worth less than a year's labor. And essentially to say, salvation can be had by a little less than a year's worth of labor. But Judas now knows at this hour that Christ is worthy more than an eternity worth of labor. <laughs> he knows better. His theology is good now. But that is the evaluation that sinners make of Christ. They do not think of Jesus in spiritual terms. They are not thinking at the cost of salvation. Hebrews 10.29 says, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? So that's, that's where Judas is. Judas has counted the blood of Christ as a common thing. And many who profess to be Christians have this approach towards Jesus. They have no proper spiritual evaluation of Christ. And so they put salvation in fleshly categories. Convenience versus inconvenience. Just tell me what I need to do so that I can organize my life and I'm good to go. All these other things about Christ are too distant to my present life and do not matter much to me. Give me the practical things of life. And I have a friend of mine, mine's wife, who said to me some few years back, just sent me messages on how to raise children. I said, well, I have gospel messages. She said, no, I don't want those just give me the ones that help me to raise children. And I told her, I only had gospel messages and she would not take them. And she lost interest. So Judas is not concerned about salvation, even the salvation of his own soul. He's thinking, making money makes sense. Jesus, don't you think? <laughs> and Judas got really upset about this. And he was so mad that it triggered him. His anger triggered him to want and go betray Jesus to the Pharisees and the chief priests. People are not letting Jesus do the evaluation of things for us. Hear what Jesus says about valuation of things, of eternal matters, spiritual matters. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world, and loses his own soul. That's evaluation. Jesus is calling man to make evaluation on eternity matters. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is the valuation that comes from Jesus. And then he will say then in Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, Judas, all the money shall be added unto you. Whatever else shall be added unto you. Seek Christ first. So Judas is doing bad accounting. He is failing to balance 
the books on eternal matters. His profit and loss account is messed up. It is lopsided. Judas thinks 300 denarii are too much money. He thinks, what if I sell Christ for a tenth of that? Maybe 30 pieces of silver. That is close enough and that's good enough for me because I don't take kindly to such a waste. We are wasting money, Jesus. What is that saying? It is saying that if you are in the right mind, if you are in your right spiritual mind, you can't oppose anything that relates to the work of Christ. You don't oppose anything that relates to the work of Christ. It is a sign of spiritual deadness and madness and foolishness to go against Christ's interests. Let us use the money in Columbus and nowhere else. Not for anyone in those places where they handle snakes in Zimbabwe. And I'll tell you the honest truth, that is taking the Judas way of evaluating the priorities of Christ. Christ has only one priority as far as the world is concerned, is this church. And no one fights Christ, no one fights against Jesus and wins. It's never happened, it will never happen. You never fight the agenda of Christ and win. And the agenda of Christ is for his gospel to go forth. But we are told that Judas used to steal money from the group because he was the treasurer. But see that Jesus appointed him to that position to steal the money and inflame his desire to enrich himself. Jesus knows about it. And he knows how much money was stolen by Judas. (laughs) And yet... He still had him every day. That's sovereignty. (laughs) I'm telling you. Verse 7 and 8. By the way, we are finishing verse 8. So that means we are actually... Oh yeah, we are actually very done. Very good. Verse 7 and 8. Jesus responded and says, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always. But me you do not have always. Did Mary know that Jesus was going to die or was it by God's sovereignty that she was meant to buy the oil and to keep it? You see, Mary has just had a brother who died. She could have used that oil on Lazarus. She did not because she had to break the bottle. Mary, it seems, has some very good theology. Out of the death of Lazarus, And she has connected it with Jesus. There's a lot of understanding that Mary has had from her interaction with Jesus and listening to Jesus. Otherwise, why would she come with a flask and break the whole thing? Mary, why? Why are you being violent? (laughs) Like I said, good theology informs practice that pleases Jesus. And it was just some very simple act of devotion. She did not do anything really amazing. And yet Jesus says, that's excellent stuff. But pay attention to this. The oil that was used on Jesus was not left over. It was not some leftovers from Lazarus. This flask had not been opened before. Why? Because in the context of the coming death of Christ, He is coming to inaugurate a new covenant in his blood. And it's a new covenant and not an improvement of the old. 
So the jar has to be broken for Christ. And Christ alone, it could not have been used for Lazarus, for that would have meant that Christ was coming to improve upon the old covenant. The old covenant was not being improved upon. It was coming to be replaced, to be replaced, to be fulfilled, and then replaced by the death of Christ. So this is a continuation of the teaching of the new wine in new wineskins. Okay? So Mary, see this, Mary is commended by Jesus, and but Judas is rebuked by Jesus. Why? Because the teaching of Judas was wrong. It was messed up. Christ is not about the alleviation of human poverty. The death of Christ was not for the alleviation of human poverty. And so Jesus rebukes Judas. This would have been a wonderful time for Jesus to say, Oh, Judas, you are so good. How did you get to that? I actually meant to say that, but you, you went ahead of me. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You are not getting this. The poor you shall always have with you, but Jesus you shall not always have with you. But who are the poor? There's a problem with the definition of the poor. Judas thinks the poor are they who have nothing. We have nothing in terms of material possession. But that is not the understanding of poverty as far as Christ is concerned. The poor are they who need the gospel preached to them. Because if you still remember, when John the Baptist was in prison, and he sent for his disciples to Jesus, and they were asking Jesus, are you the one to come or should we wait for another? And Jesus said, you go and tell John what you are seeing. The sick are getting healed. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. So as far as Jesus is concerned, the poor are they who have not the righteousness of Christ. The ones who have not had the gospel and believed on the gospel, they are poor. They are in abject poverty as far as Christ is concerned. Material riches are not the riches that God considers to be rich. And we'll finish off with Revelation 3.17. Jesus says this in Revelation 3.17, Revelation 3.17, the letter to the church at Laodicea. Jesus says, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. So the poverty that Jesus speaks to is not poverty of possessions, because these people had an abundance of possessions. So, Judas is bringing a false understanding of what it means for one to be poor, and Jesus does not go with him. But we praise the Lord for his broken body, because by the breaking of the body of Christ, in his completeness, we have the fragrance that filled us with his righteousness. And so, when God looks at every one of us who are in the house where Christ is, who are in the body of Christ, every one of us, we smell good. We smell good. And that's the testimony that John is bringing. And we smell good because of the Holy Spirit of promise that has been given 
to all those who are in the house with Jesus. Praise the Lord. You're done. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise your name and glorify you for you are kind and we are gracious. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for his broken body, his body that gave us the Holy Spirit, that gave us the aroma of life, the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, these are glorious things and we just pray that we continue to be encouraged by these testimonies because they continue to give us the same testimony over and over that we have been fully accepted in Christ and there's nothing that stands us between you and us. We have the righteousness of Christ and there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. May you be with us as we go in and out. And may you be with those who shall listen from afar. May you grant them ears to hear. For the sake of Christ and to the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.